Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am delighted to welcome Kathy Pickens to the podcast today. Kathy is the author of the Southern Fried Mysteries, and she also served as a Sisters in Crime president and on the boards of Mystery Writers of America and Melkenberg Forensic Medicine Program. She taught law in a graduate business school, entrepreneurship in the jail, and offers workshops on developing creativity. I can't wait to talk a little bit more about that. Her latest books are Charlotte True Crime Stories from History Press, True Crime Stories of Eastern North Carolina and create developing your creative process. Welcome to the podcast, Kathy. Thank you so much, Julie. So let's talk about um, your your presidency with Sisters in Crime. You were president from 2010 to 2011, which both feels like it was a long time ago, <laughs> and it was yesterday. yesterday. <laughs> Um, But that was an important time during Sisters in Crime history. So first of all, let's just talk about the organization in general. When did you become involved with Sisters in Crime? You know, it was back in the old days when I wrote to Marilyn Wallace, and she said, well, you need to get, these were letters, (laughs) you need to get in touch with Kate at Case Mystery Books. And um, she's signing people up. And so that's when I joined. And um, very soon after that, my very first short story and the first in the Southern Pride thing was published in a joint anthology with Sisters in Crime and Private Eye Writers of America. Um, Friends of mine teased me that Sue Dunlap takes, also a former president, takes responsibility for my entire career, and I will let her. That's that's fine. (laughs) But it was, to me, a a neat introduction, and very quickly, um, about the power of the sisterhood and the supportiveness of it all, even back in, you know, Conestoga wagon days um, when we got started. Um, And so you've been a member since it was really started early on not not one certainly not one of the first but after they'd gotten their um, sea legs under them and the ship was a sail certainly I got the benefit um, of that and um, when people ask me what's been the most um, fun or the most surprising thing about being a writer I have to say unequivocally it's the people I've gotten to know um, yeah. You know, it's being friends with Margaret Marin or with Sue Dunlap or Nancy Picard or Dorothy Cannell or all these incredible people of whom I was a huge fangirl long before um, I met them and can now call them friends. And that list just goes on and on. And so um, when they asked me to first join the board, I remember sitting there, we were doing a, a strategic planning retreat. Well, in my other life, I was a business professor, 
had conducted many strategic planning <laughs> retreats and <laughs> had consulted with businesses and done all these sorts of things. But I sat there watching Roberta Islip going, oh, dear Lord, what a job she has. I could never do that. <laughs> did I know. Um, but that was the time when we made the shift, and it was very fortunate, um, to a different kind of status, a tax-exempt status, which had been denied to us years earlier Mm -hmm. um, on technical grounds. And thank goodness for Authors Coalition money because that allowed us to hire really good legal talent. I'm a lawyer in another life. I'm not that kind of a lawyer. Um, And and went through that process and and was successful. And that has provided the funding for these significant education programs that Sisters in Crime is able to support. Um, Absolutely. So that was was an exciting thing to be a part of. well, it's exciting, but it's also uh, based on some of the conversations I've had with people. It was a lot of work to get us that status, for which we're grateful for now. Yeah. So we're um, a nonprofit. We're a membership organization. So we're not a 501c3. We're a 501c6. Yeah. Um, but as you said, you just that roll has... that right off your tongue. Right? <laughs> uh, I will say the hat is LED. I'm learning a lot of things these days. Um, but it's it's really has in, allowed us to grow tremendously yeah. in the past dozen years in a number of different ways, including the programs that we provide. And um, you know, when I when people ask me, as a matter of fact, I was having this conversation just this week with a writer, and I said, and it, it was a, a guy, and I said, you got to join Sisters in Crime. Yes, they take guys. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I said, if for nothing else, I mean, there's certainly the networking and the the you know, comradeship, but there's also the incredible education programs. I mean, that's always the first thing I tell people. If you want to write mysteries, you better be a member. Um, yeah, in the webinar archives that are members oh. only. So our webinars are available to everybody, but then after three days, they're put into the um, webinar archives, which, and they're a tremendous oh resource uh, as you're trying to figure stuff out in a number of different ways. Things you may not have at first thought you needed to know, and then suddenly you find that you do. <laughs> well, I, I think that part of the surprise on a writing journey is that you do have to keep learning the entire time you're doing The it. surprise and, and, and a good bit of the fun. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So when you mentioned some of the people you've become friends with, I mean, those are, are really important people um, in Sisters in Crime, but also in the crime writing community. And I do think the community is is one of the great things about Sisters oh, in Crime. Yeah. I the would, people I we meet. Yeah. 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 And the camaraderie and the um, support systems that you don't think you're going to need as a writer, but you end up needing very much. And people who aren't part of it or haven't experienced have this odd sense that we should be competitors, that somewhere, somehow we're here to beat each other out. And I have never, ever once seen that um, as a part of this um, organization or of the writing community as a whole. So it's a really cool thing. I agree. I, I think that um, it's also I, within the 
crime writing genre, it's a particularly nice group of people. It is. It, well, it's because they have so many other outlets for their aggressions. So I agree. <laughs> I agree. Uh, people who upset them, they just kill them yeah. in their books. It's all or sad. I like to make them the murderer. That just seems more cruel to me. So <laughs> it is a very relaxing, um, a relaxing way to to move about. So let's talk about your writing journey. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, you're a lawyer and you teach business classes, and so you've got that that part of you, um, which obviously took a lot of education, a lot of practice to to uh, to maintain, but. When did you think, I want to write a book? I was 11 years old. Okay. And I, I'm not, obviously not, as I always say, not a very precocious child because I didn't realize until then that people wrote books. Um, I was an avid reader, of course, Nancy Drew. And I can remember so vividly coming home from school where somehow I had learned that day that actual people write books. And I told my mom that's what I wanted to do. Well, now the week before I'd want to be an archaeologist. <laughs> and she had said, well, Kathy, you are not the most patient person I know. And that involves a lot of scraping, brushing away of mud with a toothbrush. Yeah, probably not that. So I come in this week, I'm going to be a writer. And she looks, she's standing at the kitchen sink. She looks down and she says, well, Kathy, that would be good. You would be good at that. And then pause. She said, but you really do need to find a way to support yourself. Now I'm 11 years old. Yeah. Okay. So it's like, <laughs> obviously she didn't think that it would be good for me to continue to be living with her when I was, um, or my dad when I was, you know, much older. So um, that was very wise advice, kind of shocking when I look back on it. But it, it made me realize that there were multiple parts to people's lives. And I do think that's probably the best one of the best pieces of advice I got was that you don't have to support yourself with your art. Now, other people, I have artist friends of all kinds who do. Um, and I've had others like, like I have who have made a choice not to, that they want to keep those things separate. And that, that was just my choice. And I think a lot of it had to do with that. So I've gone and done these other things, which in nice ways fed my writing. But I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, and so I was one of those you know, writers who went to law school, <laughs> writers yeah. who did a whole bunch of other stuff. So, yeah. Well, and we, you know, we're going to have a conversation about this, how our publishing journeys and our writing journeys are separate journeys <laughs> and need to be separate. It's um, nice when they come together. but <laughs> It is nice and intersect for a moment. But I also, you know, as you're when you're saying I, I'm going to be a lawyer because I want to support my family, but I'm still a writer, yeah. um, claiming that space of success is really important for people to be able to do and to understand that you don't you don't have to you know eat beans out of yeah. a can and <laughs> you know live or in, in my one case, room. In my case, they've probably been on a park bench. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, right. No. I mean, yeah. you can. Um, you're still a writer if you if you're doing other things to support Absolutely. yourself financially. And I think in some ways, for me, a better writer. I mean, I wouldn't have had the stories to tell had I not done these other things. And I have a sister who is a is an incredible musician. She's a church musician, and she crafts things that are just unbelievable. And she had a perfect job and was making good money and had a good life, and she left it. She said, I'm in more meetings and dealing with things I don't want to deal with and not as much doing my art. 
And so she made a decision. She's very, she's very deliberate about it. I'm not going to pay my bills with my art. So now she teaches math in a high school. <laughs> she's also very good at that. Yeah. And um, she does her music on the side. And, you know, basically, the same, basically two full-time jobs now, <laughs> but um, right. she loves it. You know, I mean, that's what she does. So I, I've had reinforcement for that. And, yeah, I agree with you. It's like, um, yeah, I like to eat and sleep indoors. So it's like, <laughs> good <Right>. choice. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and for some people, um, they can support themselves writing. But yeah. most people are going to need to have other ways of supporting their, their yeah, lives. Yeah, so did Charles Dickens. So, yes. you know, so all kinds of people have had to. So it's like, yes, exactly. <laughs> Charles Dickens is actually an interesting oh, entrepreneur oh, of absolutely. his time. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and if they had yeah. had podcasts, he would have been all over it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he totally, he would have had his own YouTube he channel. Would, he would <laughs> He'd be on TikTok by yeah. now, and I, I can't even <laughs> imagine. <laughs> so did you always think, I want to be a crime writer, or yes. were you? I didn't okay. know there was anything else. Um, I, <laughs> apparently, not only was I not precocious, I was not well read. But I really thought that I, I, everything else bored me. Uh, you know, now I mean, I'm thinking about Dickens because I'm now reading um, Dickens, and I think he was probably wasted on me when I was younger, and so I didn't spend the time. So I'm in the middle of David Copperfield right now, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is wickedly funny um, in places and just deeply tragic in others. And so um, I didn't, I didn't read those kinds of things earlier, um, but I devoured crime novels. And you mentioned Nancy Drew, oh. um, and that's a gateway for many uh, folks. gateway drug. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and anyone else in that, you, you know, know Trixie that you, Belden and one yeah. that a lot of people don't know, but Brains Benton, there was only six in that series and I don't know a lot about its history, but it was, the, the print was so tiny that even then I had trouble reading it. But, um, and of course I still have all, I still have all these, they'd probably crumble if I tried to open them, but um, just, and we didn't have a bookstore. I, I was, I was probably in high school before I ever actually saw a bookstore. Um, so you got them at. J.M. Fields and Kmart, you know, little racks from the toy yeah. department where you'd scrounge in the back and see if they'd gotten in a new book. Yeah. So, um, and and my mom was an avid reader and um, had read those books when she was younger. So, um, it was kind of a natural progression. But I, I didn't, I didn't move past that. They were just too fascinating. And I married my husband, probably in part. Because he has all his Hardy Boy books in the paper <laughs> covers. Now, he's older wow. than I am, so I never even saw Nancy Drew books in paper covers. But, I mean, it, does that not sound like the start of, a, of an inevitable romance? <laughs> it absolutely does. And the paper covers tells oh, you yeah, something absolutely, important. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> he was a boy. They're a little raggedy, but still. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. So did you take writing class? Or how did you how did you start with your crime writing? You know, journey? Um, the library was the county library was literally at the bottom of our driveway. We lived on the Mill Hill, and um, our, it was a long block long driveway, and it ended right at the front door of the library. And the library ladies, as we called them, as they call themselves, because they were they were all ladies, and um, the the director of the library 
somehow, I guess I let it slip because I didn't really talk about it to people that I wanted to be a writer. That was kind of something I held close because it seemed too, I don't know. It was yeah. a secret. <laughs> and um, and somehow, I guess from what I checked out and, or maybe something I had said, she knew that that's what I wanted to do. And one day she said, Kathy, would you like to have these old back copies of the writer magazine and this found book of the writer that they would put out periodically um, because we're about to discard them. So up the hill I go, (laughs) this stack of really, really mildewy smell (laughs) magazines, Lysol them, laid them out in the sun (laughs) and, and poured over them. I studied those things. And I was probably about 12 or 13 then. And that was the start of my writing education. And I didn't, um, Again, I had heard of people sort of being stunted by taking creative writing and things like that in mm-hmm. college. And and I shot away from that, to tell you the truth. But it was always I would read craft materials, study other people's books, um, go later on to conferences and those sorts of things. So um, I, I was aware that I was getting an education um, and seeking an education. Um, well, that. especially when you want to write crime fiction, yes. there's oftentimes in creative writing classes a bias a against of, yes. genre writing. Yes, and I, yeah. that was really what told me to no hold off, you know, yeah. stick Don't. away from that. And that you know, fortunately, that's not the case so much anymore. They're still there. I mean, everybody's got to have something to be snobby about. Um, but um, at least there are now programs for people that are more open to that. Um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, um, do, have you? Did people give you writing advice? I mean, what's the best and the worst advice you got, either that young or as you were moving forward? Um, you know, that that's an interesting question because I've gotten so much good advice over the years. I would have to say the thing I preach to other people that I work with now comes from Stephen King's book on writing. Mm-hmm. And that is right with the door closed because as a young writer, you're so anxious to know how you're doing. And you, you could be young at 88, you know, whenever you're, you're still learning and trying things and you want to rush out and show it to somebody. And, and he says, no, write until you're completely satisfied with it. You've done as much as you can with it and then crack the door open and invite some people in. And I preach that all the time that you have to, don't leave yourself open to something that might either tell you that it's good when it's not or crush you by giving, by giving you some false criticism that you, you're not ready for. Um, and I would say the other really good advice I got was from Ruth Cavan, who is my editor, the iconic Ruth Cavan yeah. um, at St. Martin's, who selected my book for the, um, the Malice Domestic Award. And we were walking along the street one day. Now, Ruth started in the publishing business when she was 56 years old. I didn't know that. Wow. Yes. I mean, and and I so I was working with her. She was in her 80s. So we're walking along the street, and she said, Kathy, write the book that's in you. Don't write somebody else's book because you can't. That's all that's she said. great advice. And I'm like, thank you, because it was like permission to do what I wanted to do anyway. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know what anybody else's book said. Um, but I thought, I thought it was also really wise. Um, because we aren't all given the same book. No, we aren't. And I think that's incredibly wise and generous yes. um, of her to disperse She was that. very much a writer's editor. And I 
may never see her like again. She was very surgical in yeah. her um, edits, and and usually it was you know just right to the point. Except one time when she thought that I my my murderer was enjoying it a little bit too much, and um she, she says, "Well, can't you just give her use a poison and just let them drop to the library rug gently?" And I and I. I I just came on court. She sent me the longest email she had ever sent me, and I sent her the longest email. <laughs> no, I've not studied poisons for 25 years. <laughs> There's no such poison. Yeah. So, um, so I, I like the fact that she pretty much let me literally and figuratively get away with murder. Um, but she also had a very good eye for what the market would allow and what was palatable for a reader so in the end I changed his sentence and we were both happy so um yeah well that's part of the conversation that I think people don't uh, always anticipate is when you're going to be published it's a whole other set of of conversations with somebody who's going to have opinions yes and god bless them it's like i you know everybody needs an editor lord only knows i do if one would follow me around in real life and keep me from (laughs) the filters are gone i say things i shouldn't um yeah that would be a good thing so um but you know, I, I, I've heard horror stories, too. I've been very fortunate. In fact, I may have always had editors that let me get away with a little bit more than might have been wise. <laughs> but uh, but um, it is collaborative in the neatest possible way. Yeah. yeah. And no matter what path you take, whether you're traditionally published or independent, you're an indie author, you need that voice you need somebody else to talk to you about the book in the editing process absolutely absolutely and I'm working with a a young man now who's in prison he had gumption enough to seek me out to find me and approach me and at first he wanted advice on how to promote a book that he was going to self-publish and I'll be honest it, it was wordy and cumbersome and I just asked, I said, are you interested in working on it some more? Are you, are you ready? You said, he said, I'm set. Okay, fine. Well, he sends me another book that he is willing to work on. And the structure was amazing. He does such mm-hmm. an amazing job with creating really rich, warm, interpersonal relationships. And it's a time travel novel to the Titanic. <laughs> it's all these other things. And you're like, He's learned, he's been in prison forever and he has read and studied his craft and worked on it and they don't have word processors. They have dictionaries and they have pens and they have notebook paper and that's it. And so he sends me 650 pages (laughs) and it's good enough that I typed it for him because I didn't want him to go that expense again so we could work on it because he's one of the best most willing writers I've ever worked with to change what he's doing and to learn from it and to ask questions. And the structure was fine. Only thing he had to work on was cutting out what he didn't need. So 250 pages are gone and it's a good book. Wow. You know? And so, it, so both on the receiving end and I hope on the offering end you you learn things from an editing process it's a creative collaboration that's really powerful 
And so you're wearing that hat for him. Did it, do you think that that helps inform your writing as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've, I've worked with people over the years. It's true of teaching. Um, You know, you, you don't know anything until you've taught it. So um, I know I didn't know law until I taught it. Um, And it, it gives you a different perspective. It also makes you understand um, the different stages of the process, uh, how damaging criticism can be at the wrong time and how invigorating it can be at the right time. I mean, we all, we all want somebody to say, Oh my gosh, this is the most deathless prose I've ever read in my life. Nothing could improve upon this. Um, I'm still waiting to hear that <laughs> myself. And, and of course I'm being silly because I want, it's always going to need work. And um, yet at the same time, you want encouragement that provides support at the same time. And um, I think learning both how to take that and give that is, is a good thing for life in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, your writing journey <clears throat> has taken you in different directions, um, as we just talked about. Let's, can we just talk about the difference when you become a published author, which, again, is a separate it's a separate thing. <laughs> um, and what that was like for you? I remember sitting at BoucherCon. I believe that it was in Monterey. Not the last time I was there, but before. I believe that's where it was. Um, listen to Sue Grafton. I could have the location wrong, but I remember the room and everything else brilliantly well. And Sue Grafton said, those of you who are working on books, enjoy writing your first book. It will never be the same again. And I'm sitting there going, well, easy for you to say, lady. (laughs) I don't know where she was in the alphabet at the time, but it was quite well along. And you know what? She was right. Um, The first book, you learn so much and it changes so much. Um, Somebody once said, it's not how, how long did it take you to get published. It's how long did it take you to get publishable? And I, that, it is, it absolutely is. And so the book that I thought was ready um, years later um, was published and it had been through so many iterations and I learned something every time. So the process is long and it's important. Um, I also learned along the way that the rejections that you get early are just making you ready for the rest of life. You know, one of my first... <laughs> One of my, the first book that came out, I had such, such nice response and reviews and people invited me to do things. And then there was one review that, um, in my head, the review says, how do I hate this book? Let me count the ways. (laughs) And it was actually clipped from a clipping service. I am aging myself so much. Clipped, (laughs) mailed to New York to my publisher, who then mailed it to me. So it took months to get there. I open the envelope and I'm reading it and I start laughing. And my husband says, you're taking this very well. (laughs) So I said, well, you know what? If this had been the only review I'd ever gotten, I probably wouldn't be. (laughs) Okay, but I've been rejected by better people than this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so the, at least they were creative about it. I look back later, the review doesn't exactly say that. I don't know how that imprinted itself in my mind so poetically, um, but it did. But people, I don't like every book I pick up. So, right. no, so that's something I had to learn um, along the way. 
And um, I think probably the most important thing that I've learned and that I preach all the time, because as we talk about, you know, we do creativity development work with people, you control the process. You control the work you put into it. You control the advice that you get and, and the education that you get and what you pour into it. You do not control the outcome. You do not control how other people respond to it. Right. So how about you be happy with the process, okay, and, right. and, and enjoy that and do what you can with that. And then at some point you have to recognize now, I don't, I don't mean you just it just floats along like an air firm. There's always work to be done in promoting a book or in attempting right. to sell a book or to continue to improve a book so it's publishable. But you can't agitate over whether it, you know, started number one on the New York Times bestseller list or, or, right. or didn't get published. It's, it's not really in your control. No, it isn't. And I think that's a, the business side understanding the business side, but also understanding that there's timing, there's luck, there's all these factors you just have no control over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hard thing to learn, <laughs> I think, for people, but yeah. it's it's an important thing to learn. You can't equate your success as a writer with how your book ranks on Amazon or on a bestseller Exactly. Best and, you know, I'm, I'm sure every time I say that to a group, somebody sitting in the audience is going, easy for you to say, lady. <laughs> You know, it's, um, but it's given me a great deal of uh, both peace and confidence um, as I've gone forward, because I I have the luxury of choosing the projects I want to work on, walking away from the ones I don't want to, and genuinely listen to people when they say this is working or this isn't working, and deciding whether um, I'm willing to take their advice um, or not. And I, I like that. Uh, you know, that's my creative part of it. Well, let's talk a little bit about, especially your most recent publications, uh, which are are short story compilations. They're um, they're, they're true crime. They're true crime in, you know, cases. I don't want to say they're short stories because people think they're fiction, but but they are short cases. because I've, I'm trying to, I, I do it for History Press. It's been one of those happy lightning strikes in my life. I wrote for them early on a book about Charleston that actually a ghost tour and mystery tour of Charleston, South Carolina, because I had set a book there mm-hmm. and um, met some young people, and they were young, um, working at History Press at the South Carolina Book Festival. And they said, well, would you do a book? I said, why not? And I, I hadn't thought about it anymore, but I had become fascinated. You talked about how you have to learn things as you go along as a crime writer. And I have immersed myself in forensics, in all, all kinds of nitty-gritty, from taking courses to sitting down with experts to reading textbooks to, you know, taking classes so that... Um, I, I, I'm serious about the details. It's, you know, so, and so then that part of my life sort of took over and I became fascinated with the power of real crime cases. Mm-hmm. I think part of that is because I started teaching business as a volunteer in the jail. And all of a sudden the Agatha Christie, Nancy Drew puzzle and mystery kind of thing for me, um, hit reality. Mm-hmm. And real crime's not 
an intellectual puzzle for entertainment. It's very complicated lives on both sides of the equation and um, loss on both sides. And here's these guys who could have been sitting in one of my graduate MBA classes getting their degree in business, but they were sitting in orange jumpsuits, all Mm. colors and ages and backgrounds and sizes, (laughs) you know, um, really bright and uh, wickedly funny (laughs) and very, very creative um, people. And so I began to see the complexity and interest of these stories and, um, I started considering how the crime that happens in a particular locale affects that locale, helps shape it. I mean, the people who live there, certainly, um, you know, the people that live in Charlotte are going to be different from the people who live in Boston and different from the people who live in some small town in Arizona. And so we're going to have different stories that have shaped us. So that, um, that, fascination with true crime is not the, um, I'm not an investigative reporter. I'm not digging up the latest dirt on, you know, a serial killer or something like that. Um, I'm looking at historical accounts and some of them recent, um, of cases, some of them solved, some of them I'm hoping will be solved because they're in the books. Um, and the, and just because of their story potential, their fascinating stories. Wow. Wow, that's an interesting tangent. Is this something that you're going to keep working on or keep, <laughs> well, you know? History Press keeps offering me contracts, and I keep saying yes. So I'm doing upstate South Carolina right now, um, as we speak, as we're going today. And I grew up there. It's there are Southern Appalachian Mountains dip into that part of South Carolina. And um, I met my first murderer when I was three years old. He, would, he didn't know he was going to be a murderer, and I certainly didn't know he was going to be. Um, but he would stop by and chat with me at the post office every day. And 10 years later, a horrible murder. And um, so it's been wow. interesting to sort of go back and see what I knew when I was three and what I learned about him when I was 11 and find out what the real story was, read the inquest, and see that my family doctor was the one who went and examined the body. I mean, you said you small town stuff, very small town stuff. And um, kind of see how that's different from today. And um, he was known to be really mean. He shot some lady's chickens. She, <laughs> she gets, the, wow. gets the police chief to come down and shoot my chickens while they're in my garden. He shot people's cats and dogs, and people knew him to be a really mean drunk. And what I remember about him was how kind he was. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, and obviously your writer's mind was working even then <laughs> that you that you can think about somebody's story and how it's going to be different. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. It, and it's so it's a I, I'm just having a blast. Um, these I want to be careful because th- these people these are real people's lives, and yeah. there's a lot of pain, and there's people who's still alive, and you know those sorts of things. So I always want to be respectful of of this, and yet I also think their stories are important. We shouldn't lose them. I realize how hard I've had to dig to find some of these stories and to get the facts straight over time because they get lost. Things sift mm-hmm. over the top of it. So maybe, hey, I did just stop about that. Maybe I'm an archaeologist after all. 
She's, it certainly she's not sounds in the dirt, like okay? <laughs> I don't have no. to get in the mud or the heat. Yeah, <laughs> so, because you're looking, you're uncovering and looking for the story. God, I didn't even thought of that. I told you just now. Um, but yeah, it's been fascinating. Today I've been immersed in the Charlotte Observer in a 1929 um, murder case that just enthralled the city. I mean, people were cramming the courtroom trying to get the latest news. And don't you love how chatty old newspaper stories are? Yeah. I mean, they say, you know, now it's just like, ah, man. But back then, wow, you learned stuff that <laughs> I guess I can't print it now. I don't know. Well, it's on Twitter now. So I guess, it's <laughs> I guess so. But, you know, that's here and gone so fast. I know. And, I know. And I don't know what happens. So it's really struck me. I don't know what happens since so we can't go back to these digitized records and read them and see the paper, you know, see the photos. And yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's going to be. And also there's so much there's so story. Much. Back then there's they so would pick story. and choose what, they, yeah. what the stories were. But now yeah. there's so much that it's you can't go as deep on one particular subject. So I think as storytellers, we have an obligation. I mean, we're, we're capturing, whether it's as fact or fiction, we're capturing sort of the zeitgeist um, of a time. And it's, it's an important, it's an important role. Yeah, it is indeed. Um, so fearing off to another subject a little bit, you wrote a book called Create, Develop Your Creative Process, Developing Your Creative Process. Um, and you have a website about it and all, and you teach and everything else. So Kathy, can you talk about what you're, what you're doing with this work and, and how that's developed over time? Um, I obviously have a very peripatetic life with a very low boredom threshold. Apparently. <laughs> so, um, when I was teaching the business school, um, I, I taught law and ethics, but one day I realized that creativity had become something that people were exploring in terms of innovation institutes and that sort of thing. And I'm like, well, boom, there's the two sides of my life that come together. So I worked with these MBA students, most of whom identified themselves as not creative. Mm -hmm. Really stupid statement, I told them, because that's part of being human. The only problem is you're not using it. So over, over a period of time, I developed this process. We, we learn a scientific process when we're in school, but we don't learn that there's also a creative process and that it's a discipline and that you work at it, okay? And mm -hmm. you, you use the process. It's not necessarily linear. And I use the, the I spell create out for the different steps of the process, but that you get stuck somewhere, you know how to unstick yourself. You kind of go back and do this, okay, fill your well up in these ways, or when, how do you get and use, um, I call it tweak for the critique part, use the T for tweak, how do you get and use meaningful feedback, we all need it, as we just said, um, but where do you get that, how do you seek it out, how do you implement it in what you're doing, um, and I've said many, many a time, if business could learn to use a creative critique process the way writers and visual artists and movie makers and other people do, we could change the world. 
mm-hmm. um, rather than this, oh, let's have the an- proverbial annual performance evaluation because that's so darn effective at providing <laughs> feedback. Um, why don't we try a different way? Um, and so if I can at least get creative people to see <laughs> the value of that feedback and and the, pl- and the place where they are and how they get better at it and that you do grow and change and um, that you can learn something over here that you apply in this other project. And you may be learning photography in your private life and be surprised at the effect of what you learned or how you learned it might help you be a better engineer or a better salesman. Um, and so I am just really um, rabid about this topic. Um, and through an interesting set of circumstances, which can best be summed up by God has a sense of humor, I have ended up doing these sessions now for two years in um, a residential drug rehab facility um, here in Charlotte. And um, wow, <laughs> it's like I get to watch these, they're all women, they come in and when I get to watch them over the three or four months are there, grow and change. And their native level of creativity just blows my socks off. They're incredible. Mm. And I've also worked with CEOs of major corporations and guys in jail and um, engineers and chemists and writers and dancers and all kinds of people. And um, the process is the same. And, you know, it works. I mean, we just have to learn how to, develop it it's what a gift you're giving so many different people because creativity is the answer oh. for seeing things in different ways or for exploring you know seeing the world in technicolor instead of sepia tone everything oh, beautifully said or, or how to survive a pandemic or yeah. <laughs> how yeah. to raise your child or how to grow old you know right. it's um it's we're all, we're all given it. It's just that somehow we, I, I tell people, I say, okay, here's what I don't want to hear. Mine's not as good as hers. Oh, I can't do that. I've never been very good at that. I don't want to try that. <laughs> None of that. There's a whole litany of things I am not going to listen to. <laughs> so. Well, that's so, that's a wonderful way of putting it because I do think sometimes people uh, are, afraid of failure or afraid that, you know, they don't understand that part of the creative process is being terrible at the beginning. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And oh, can I share my failures with you? Yes. But you know, you've just hit on it. That's the one thing. If I want to ignite a conversation with people, I said, what are you afraid of? And then I have to be specific because somebody say spiders. Um, And that's obviously not what I'm talking about. But it's like, what keep, what holds you back? You know, mm-hmm. or I ask a different way, what kills creativity? That's a big mm-hmm. question in a corporate setting. But we're all afraid. Yes. You know, and, and, and if you're not, you're not trying anything new. So the secret is to be just enough afraid. Okay? Right. <laughs> you don't want to be paralyzed with it. Um, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be any fun or much of a challenge if you're just cranking out the same old thing all over again. Right. 
No, I think that a gift to give the world is to help them think creatively. So what a wonderful thing that you're doing with this book and with your courses and with your trainings and everything else. Well, I'm ha- I, I'm having a blast. I can't really assess whether anybody else is getting anything out of it or not, but I, <laughs> I'm learning from them, so it's good. And have you been doing this for a while, or yes. is this a sort yes. of, have you put it together? You know, the book came out last year. It but, did, and that was, that was, what, 10 or 12 years in the making. Yeah, I didn't say yeah. it was fast. I just, <laughs> so, yeah, but I've learned something um, all along the way. But it, talk about, you know, being given our, our stories, being given our books. That book was given to me. It was like, it, it came together in a really neat way. It was like this, and I, I don't say there's this flash of inspiration because there's a heck of a lot of work that went into it because I'm an inveterate researcher. And I wanted to see what other people had thought about creativity. And there was a huge talk about it after World War II. We were trying to rebuild the world. And then they decided, well, it couldn't be regimented enough, so we best throw it away now, you know, yeah. before we get. And so um, then it came back again, and we're trying to. And that's not the way you do it. I sat. I said one time this guy had taken a creativity experience and he was the CEO and he was talking to a group of business people. And he said, company should go out and hire a creative person and, you know, an artist to be in their company. And in my head, fortunately the filters were in place then and I didn't stand up and start screaming, your companies are full of creative people. You're squashing the daylights out of them. Um, but that's the whole thing is we, we are yeah. creative and we can use it where we are. We can't, we can't sort of smush it in there artificially. No. So um, that's what I hope's happening. But well, and I think creativity is the answer right now. That's gonna I, get us yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, what a great conversation and what a great journey. You're you're so inspiring. Oh. Um so what's you're working on another true crime and you're yes teaching your creativity class, uh, anything else coming up for you? Well, I, you know, I, I said one should, one should talk about one's failure so other people feel comfortable. I, I have written a novel, another novel. Um, it's not the first I've written in the last 10 years, um, but it's been unlike anything I've ever done before. And I just sent it off to my agent. Who knows? You may never hear about it again. This may be the one and only time that you hear about it. <laughs> but I have to say, I don't know when I've had more fun writing fiction it just it was a different it was a different kind of experience and um it's a different it's a different kind of book than anything I've done before and so who knows but all I can say is I had a whale of a good time so that's that's so much (laughs) part of the journey but it's also I wish you luck and and good for you (laughs) not to say I wouldn't like it to be publishing to do well but you know it's like at this point at this point it's like I've done what I can do for now so that's right um, but yeah I and and you know I'm very grateful to have um both now the time and just lots of opportunities to to do creative work it's it's been a good time Um, and I have to say you know the uh, pandemic has taught me a lot Uh, I'm an introvert Mm -hmm. been very happy locked and very productive locked inside (laughs) so uh, my next creative journey will be how to get back outside again (laughs) 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 to all the extroverts out there I'm sorry (laughs) no (laughs) if I sound a little nutty (laughs) 
<laughs> but there's that for sure. We've all for had sure. to, we've all had to learn who we were in a very different environment. So yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for this conversation and for your work with Sisters in Crime oh. over the years. I know that we tap you a few times when we need some advice on or your take on some projects. And I would so. feel left out if you didn't. I, I, you know, I mean, I would turn into an infomercial talking about this, but but thank you for your work. There, you know, Sisters in Crime always has this remarkable volunteer board of people. And um, now you've taken it with uh, Beth Watson um, retiring. You've you've begun to grow it into um, a different sort of framework for an organization with its heart still very much um, in the place it's always been. So thank you for that. It's a cool time. Well, you're very kind. It's a wonderful organization. I'm I'm very privileged to be working with it. Um, So thanks for this great conversation. Thank you for inviting me, Julie. This has been a blast. It has indeed. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.